0: advisor's micro to macro coverage of quarter one 2023 earnings season. Last week, we kicked it off with the big banks, and next week, we get into the thick of it. But before we move any further, I'd like to welcome my co-host, Aisha. Aisha, how are you doing?
1: Good. We had an interesting start to earnings season uh, with the big banks kicking off uh, on Friday. Prior to that, we did have a few earnings here and there, and we'll get into it a little bit more. But I just wanted to talk a little bit about what we're trying to accomplish with this. When we look at companies and when when we look at what they are reporting, we get to learn a lot about the industry. And these industries are ultimately what make up the macro. So in one sense, macro does uh, influence the micro or influence the companies. But in another sense, the companies also influence the macro, right? So it's a very interesting relationship. And I think the reason I love earning season and I love pouring through the earnings and listening to all the conference calls is because I get to learn so much, not just about the macroeconomic environment, but the industries, the companies themselves, and basically what's going on in the markets. So it's not all about playing earnings because we don't know what happens on earnings day. Right, it's something you and I have always discussed, Mayhem. That we don't play earning, we usually don't play earnings because we don't know which way it's going to go. So we try to stay away from, you know, trying to predict what uh, what will happen on earnings day, but more trying to learn uh, what's going on in the industries and with these companies, which ultimately tells us a little bit more about the macro.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's a really interesting point that often, you know, the broader discourse tends to miss. That is to say, there's so much to be gleaned from earnings, not just learning about the individual companies and their industries, which is very important, but also about the broader economy. And it all interconnects. And we start to see the potential for trends form. And these trends can impact market pricing over the intermediate and long term. But they can also give us a better idea as to which companies are doing better than their peers, which industries are showing strength during an ever-changing economic environment. So I think it's a fascinating lens into so many areas that we want to cover. So with that in mind, let's kick things off here.
1: Right. So the first thing I'd like to do is have a little preview or rather review of what we saw last week. So this is a summary that FactSet puts out. It's available free on their website, and it gives us a nice little summary of what's going on. So what we can see here is there are fewer revenue beats versus EPS beats. So earnings is, so the bottom line is kind of okay. And this is a sign of demand destruction. So what we've seen in the last couple of quarters is that companies are cutting costs, right? And then we also have on the other side costs coming down from freight, freight costs. So we've seen the PPI reports that show that input costs are coming down, right? And this is being reflected in the bottom line. So, But this part of the earnings season is when we start to see demand being destroyed, and therefore we'll see revenues or the top line coming down. Now, on the growth side, what's interesting is revenues are still growing, though. And so far on the S&P, we're seeing a 2% increase in revenues, whereas in terms of earnings growth, we're seeing a decline of 6.5%. And this, again, is interesting because it seems to suggest that margins are compressing, right? So we'll keep an eye on this. I think this time... Uh, We're expected to have an earnings decline of about 7%, but this is becoming worse. I mean, the estimates are becoming worse and worse as the day goes by. And we'll review this every week to see where we land.
0: I think that's important, too. We definitely see those estimates coming down. It's something that you've been talking about and covering. I've noted you speaking about it on Twitter and in some of the appearances you've done as well. Another thing to talk about as we get into earnings season is how the options market changes in the way it prices some of these events. And we see these dynamics of volatility building into earnings season for those expirations around earnings for the companies that are reporting, and then a crush of volatility in the wake of those earnings being reported. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. What is volatility on the implied side measuring? The expectation of price variance. When is the price variance for a single company known to be the greatest right around the time that they're reporting earnings where their shares could move more than they do for most of the rest of the quarter? And so be very careful with how you position yourself into earnings because you may buy a call or a put and you may be correct in your view on what might be happening to the underlying price of that that stock that you're speculating on, but because of volatility crush, you still may have a loss in that premium. So it's very important to be careful around earnings season. It's been said that people make more money selling options than buying options, but that's especially true around this time of
1: the quarter. So we'll take a brief look at the week that was. Here's a list of the earnings that we got and um, a couple of themes that came out of the banks. First of all, let me just say, JP Morgan crushed it, and that's no surprise. They have a Fortress balance sheet, as Jamie Dimon keeps reminding us, and he's not wrong. I mean, that balance sheet, their earnings power, it's absolutely phenomenal. And given that they are, let's say, the number one bank in the world, um, it's it's not surprising that they would benefit from a lot of the smaller banks uh, not doing so well. Having said that, we did see a large amount of charge-offs, so their charge-offs increased by about 260 million. They had already taken provisions of 2.3 billion and net charge-offs for the year has gone up to, a, uh, gone up to 1.1 billion right now. So that's not a comforting sign when it comes to you know, JP Morgan. I mean, if a bank like that who has pretty stringent credit standards are having to write off loans, that's never a good thing, right? So what can we expect from the smaller banks then? We also saw deposits decrease at JP Morgan. Again, I mean, if people are not keeping their money with JP Morgan, uh, where are they keeping their money? We kind of know the answer to that. We've seen the money flow out to money market funds. So, this is why deposits are going down. In one sense, JP Morgan can still manage because they have sufficient liquidity and they have a massive book right but at the same time if they're seeing deposit outflows we obviously know that this isn't going to bode well for the smaller banks we saw an increase in card spending and card loans increasing across the board so not just jp morgan we saw it at citigroup as well and one of the reasons for this is that people are now um, having to spend more on their cards right we've seen this um from various other data being published we've seen charts but this is an important point because a credit cards are very expensive we know that the interest rate on credit cards are you know 20 percent and above and it's getting even more expensive as rates go up and b um, they are most likely to you know see defaults so credit cards see defaults before anyone else so this is a bit of a tricky situation finally we also saw assets under management decline and we saw this at blackrock so blackrock basically they beat all right they beat on you know eps and they beat uh, or they reported revenues in line but at the same time they're the only company on this entire list that actually had a year-on-year decline, both in sales and in EPS. So they, they, I think they had about an 18% decline in revenues. And they're seeing funds flow out of their products as well, which is not a great sign again. We also heard from United Health, and this is yet again another beast. <laughs> they had fantastic earnings. They increased revenues by fifteen percent, and they increased their guidance by ten cents on either end of their uh, guidance spectrum. So, absolutely great numbers from United Health. They talked a lot about the Medicare Advantage program, and you know the disenrollment and various other things that had to do with the healthcare industry. And we'll get a little bit into that as we uh, look at the healthcare reports coming up for the week. So we have a big week ahead of us. Still not the highest uh, of earnings season. I think the last week of April will be um, like the heaviest week of earnings season. But we do have some big names reporting. Mayhem, did you want to talk about some of them? So these are a few that we want to cover, and uh, let's kick it off with Netflix, shall we?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Netflix has a revenue expectation by analysts coming in around 8.2 billion with eps of two dollars and 86 cents i remember last time they reported earnings i think it came in at about two cents but there were uh some one-time kind of items in there some of it had to do with the strength of the dollar and uh that's come off so we're looking for them to report about two dollars and 86 cents analysts are forecasting subscribers grew to 233 million rising by 2.26 million in the quarter that's a little anemic compared to what we saw prior where they grew by over 4 million. But we'll have to keep an eye out because this is a company where people have very high expectations and the reality may be a little bit different, although they have surprised to the upside on subscribers, you know, for at least two quarters. So certainly, you know, with the lower tier offerings that they've made available to the public combined with the price cuts that they've made, this has helped to increase the subscriber numbers, but it's likely to lower their margins and another issue that i see with the company is that they're putting a lot of money into a new cash furnace which is entering the gaming industry and this is an extremely competitive area gaming entertainment is notoriously hard to break into we saw google unravel their stadia offering which was a cloud gaming platform a little different than what netflix is trying to do where they're attempting to really focus on creating new content but at the same time content creation and gaming is owned by a bunch of the major studios and distributors you've got places like valve ea Blizzard, Activision, you know, which are now the same company, Microsoft, Sony, and so forth. And it's just, there's so many great developers out there. There's so many games getting into that, making a name for themselves and really disrupting that space is going to be a challenge. So I would look for Netflix in this journey of trying to get into gaming to have some struggles, some ups and downs. And that's something that's certainly going to have my attention as I continue to watch the company. I'm also interested in seeing how they perform without one of their founders, Reed Hastings, who really led the company from being just a DVD-only rental platform into being the online streaming behemoth that it is now. And then next, we have Tesla. Aisha, you want to talk a little bit more about what's going on with this one?
1: Sure. So uh, I think Tesla is one that you know they're always in the news, and I think everybody knows a lot about them. But Something that we're seeing, obviously, that came out of last time's earnings is we're seeing a little bit of margin compression, right? So other than, I'll let you speak about your points uh, in a little bit, but one of the major things that we're seeing with Tesla is the margin compression. And um, I think this this is a troubling sign for me. Uh, Tesla's always been putting up massive margins, and that's been something that's been holding up the stock Right, and that's sort of something that gives us hope for the future as well. And with margins becoming narrower, I think Tesla is losing their edge a little bit here. Now, it's it's not surprising. It's not surprising that margins are being compressed because they are taking on a lot of costs. Um, Input costs are still very high in the EV sector. Uh, I think the materials are still very expensive over there, and. All in all, the price of their vehicles are kind of, what should I say? Um, they're not at the most affordable price point <laughs> yet, right? So I, I think with all of these things, Tesla is kind of, I wouldn't say stagnating, but I don't think they're the supercar company that they used to be. Um, the I mean, a few quarters ago. So this quarter will be very interesting because we are going to see a few more changes coming down the pipe. I mean, they didn't deliver um, as they uh, expected. The number of cars that they delivered was lower than expected. So they're, they're sort of missing on their delivery targets as well. So that's something that we'll, we'll obviously keep in mind when we're looking at the results. Ma'am, do you want to talk a little bit about the price cuts and other issues?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this is a company that has some issues because the the car industry is really built on incremental change, new models, new designs, getting people to refresh their automobile maybe more rapidly than they would if there weren't those options. And Tesla has been a company that hasn't really been doing the traditional sort of rotation of different models, right? They pretty much have the same lineup that they've had for five or six years. And there's been firmware updates and there's been some new features added here and there, although they've had some pretty big setbacks on their full self-driving, which still isn't ready. It seems to be sort of in permanent beta. And we've got a CEO who's a little distracted. He's running Twitter. Now he's starting an AI company. He's got this space company with the rockets. And he's got the boring company where they're building tunnels underground. He's making, you know, play flamethrowers and all this sort of stuff. I mean, eventually I'm going to imagine that, you know, some more focus is needed at Tesla. The robot idea isn't really panning out their robot technology compared to Boston Scientific, or was it Boston Dynamics? It's just not even close to the level of technology that they have. So I think that Tesla really does need to focus on their core, which is making EVs, and they probably need to create some new models. Maybe someday the Cybertruck will come out. But the more that they cut prices. The the good thing it does for them is it helps to really erode any potential for competition to come in. But on the other side of it, it is compressing their margins. And that's going to be a problem for a company that has such a high valuation as growth is slowing, as they're missing deliveries, as their margins are coming down. And on the other side of it, I am just a little bit concerned about where all their solar and battery ambitions are going. They've said they're going to spend a lot of money making a new battery plant in Texas. They've talked about doing one in China as well. These are going to be big expenses. We're not sure what the returns on those expenses are going to be because we're talking about battery technology that over the next five or 10 years is probably going to look a lot different than it does now. So if they're going to focus on the sort of lithium batteries that are the mainstay at the moment, and they invest a lot of core, uh, you know, Time and and money try to build that up as we start to see different battery technology coming out, that could also be an issue.
1: So I just wanted to add something small here. So uh, last quarter or the quarter before last, rather, we saw... Tesla take a hit on their free cash flows. And last quarter, that actually improved quite a bit. So that's something that I would be looking at as well. Um, It it was, they did a good job um, increasing their free cash flow last quarter. So let's hope they keep it up because that's also very important for them, right? So as they grow and as they expand their factories, they need that free cash flow to keep flowing. So I think that's something that we should be keeping an eye on where Tesla's concerned. Absolutely. Right. So I wanted to cover Charles Schwab because Mayhem pointed out to me that this is a company or rather a bank that's on everybody's mind. So Charles Schwab um, actually kicks off earnings on uh, Monday, kicks off earnings for the week on Monday. Now, something I want to say before I get into some of these points is that I don't think there's any cause for concern where Charles Schwab is concerned um i think they're doing okay they have some issues with their you know held to maturity securities for sure um but then that's the case with almost every bank but Child schwab's balance sheet at the same time is still pretty strong what's most impressive about them is their solid cash generation uh capabilities um once they bought um td ameritrade you know they started to put up this fee income which is massive so they have a good um, source of income, let's put it that way. So they they have no issues over there, right? Uh, They also have uh, their funds. So that's another positive for them. Their costs are running slightly on the higher side, but I think that's got to do more or less with the integration of TD Ameritrade, which is still going on. Um, Now, in terms of their tangible book value, their tangible book value is still positive, but very low. You can see here it's at six billion dollars now this is because they have a massive amount of goodwill that they had to put on their books after they took over td ameritrade right so they have a very low tangible book value which i really don't like now if you subtract the unrealized losses on their health to maturity securities their tangible book value actually becomes negative and This only matters if Charles Schwab actually goes into liquidation. So if it goes into liquidation, basically, um, as common shareholders, you're not getting paid. Simple as that. Now, there are two issues where their health to maturity securities are concerned. First of all, they are mortgage-backed securities and they are agency MBSs. So these can be pledged uh, with the Fed to take out those loans, to take out the term funding program. But at the same time, <clears throat> these are also riskier securities because their values actually decline more than treasury values. So treasury rates have come, down, come off a little bit, but the agency MBSs would still be pricing in higher rates than the treasury rates, right? <clears throat> Which means their values declined more or have declined more. Um We'll see what happens this quarter. I think we might see some reprieve because we've seen rates come down in the last three months because of all these issues and all of that. Um, But having said that, the best thing about Charles Schwab is they have access to finance, right? So if they want to issue debt, they can. Their debt levels are still very, very low. They have access to the Fed's uh, home loan, Program, they have access to the bank term funding program, they have access to the discount window. So I don't think this company is in trouble. Um, I think they're under a little bit of pressure, but I don't think they're in trouble at all. What will happen is we will see some pressure on their earnings, and this is something that Morgan Stanley has well pointed out, right? And um, I think but even even if they do have some pressure on their earnings even if regulations do change um they should fare okay uh, i i would i would hope for the price you know the stock price to decline a little bit more before i could think about buying um because they are overpriced even at this level but <clears throat> other than that I, I mean but at least you know i would think of buying but other than that I, I I don't I don't think that they're in trouble at all.
0: Yeah, I think the story at Charles Schwab is one where there's been the fear mongering rumor mill on social media saying, oh, look at, you know, look at this credit default swap chart. Look at this, uh, you know, unrealized loss chart. Look at this, you know, um, uh, article that claims that Charles Schwab doesn't have any money and people start to take that out of context and and infer it to mean imminent peril and we're all going to die. But I think it's important to zoom out and focus on what Aisha is saying because because really, unless this company is under such duress that it has to liquidate, it's it's not going anywhere. And, and as she said, it, the Fed has facilities to try to stabilize this. But but let's also look at the bigger picture here. This is a company that has over seven trillion with a T dollars worth of assets that are largely the investments and retirements of Americans. Imagine if an institution of that scale was to even wobble in a meaningful way. No one. And I mean, no one that oversees all of what's happening in the financial system wants anything close to that to happen. They don't want to see people lose confidence in the entire system of retirement and investing in the market and so on and so forth. So, you know, worse comes to worse, I don't even think the powers that be would let a company like Schwab fail, particularly when it's really just a matter of making sure that these assets that are guaranteed to be paid 100 cents on the dollar in the future uh, are just a matter of real liquefying Schwab, right? Making sure that they're able to use funds in the here and now should they need that. And they have those facilities open to them now. So it's not even a question. So I think that's a really good point that you made, Aisha, because there's just one of the things that we want to do not only is to try to teach about how macro can be actionable and extract some of the value from these earnings, but also to try to dissuade some of the hyperbole that's out there to make sure that people aren't making errant decisions based off of rumors.
1: Absolutely. So, and you're absolutely right. The rumors have been, uh, you know, blown out of proportion, and I think it doesn't help anyone uh, for us to see these things negatively, particularly where banks are concerned. The last thing we want is to, you know, uh, spread rumors about banks and, you know, cause trouble in that industry. Um. Another company that's reporting this week, and it's interesting because I think this is their first quarter's report, not actually their year end report, is DR Horton. Now, DR Horton is the largest home builder in the US. Um, they are by far number one. But what we can see for sure is that revenues are declining, sales orders are declining, new orders are declining. Now, I have to say this, um, DR Horton has a fantastic balance sheet, okay? They manage their financials absolutely brilliantly. And <clears throat> I'd be the first one to buy this company had we not been going through this current macroeconomic environment, right? So what the Fed wants to do is pop the housing bubble. And that will obviously uh, hurt companies like DR Horton. And we're seeing that. Look at the sales from September to December. Uh, look at the sales order backlog, which has gone down. Uh, new orders have gone down. And, and and this is just, I'm showing you the last two quarters. It's been like this for the last three, four quarters now. So um, had we not been in this environment, I would have bought this company in a heartbeat. Um, but because of that, the company is Going to survive. So, even though they might see um, a decline in their orders, in their revenues, and consequently in their <clears throat> earnings and stock price, this isn't going to be permanent. So, companies like DR Horton don't get wiped out. They are the companies that you want to buy when the cycle turns. So, keep this in mind and let's put this on the shopping list for when the cycle actually turns. I like
0: that. I think that's a really good point. We have an opportunity here to look at some of the best of the best, put them on that you know wish list for when we finally get to a trough in the market, in earnings and in the economy. And we can start to scale into these things. And this is a topic for everyone that's watching that we're going to continue to cover because one of the key themes for us here at Macrovisor is longer term investing. So we're going to help all of those that are subscribers, everyone in our audience to learn as investors, what are some of the better opportunities when it makes sense to potentially allocate into them and why? Next up, we have major earnings from AT&T and Lockheed Martin. AT&T has shown strong gains in the wireless market share growth that they've been able to accomplish. This has been attributed to really good execution on the part of management. And I got to say, I think it was really smart for them to divest from the divisions. I mean, you know, every company wants to be everything to everyone to some degree, right? When they get kind of big enough, they just start growing in ways that doesn't necessarily uh, meet their core competencies or or benefit their existing business. And I think it was smart of AT&T to divest of all the unrelated entertainment assets they had. It really did not make any sense for them to have exposure to Time Warner and all this other stuff. And they are much better as just a pure play on wireless, broadband, telephony, cable, all that sort of stuff. And that's what they've become. And I think that in doing so, management is now a lot more focused and it's starting to show. They're gaining in wireless market share. They're also building out their fiber infrastructure. And let's look at them versus Verizon. Verizon really had a head start in fiber infrastructure when they built their Fios rollout really in the mid 2000s like around 2004 2005 they were starting to roll out fiber to the premises if you're not familiar with what that is and why it matters it means they were taking fiber all the way from the the office of the telephone company and running it straight to your house pure light unlimited speed, the only governor being the router on your end and the router at the ISP. AT&T took a little while to catch up to that. And they're now full throttle ahead, rolling out that pure fiber network to as many parts, mostly higher and you know higher population urban areas and suburban areas. But they're starting to grow even more to some of the more suburban rural kind of hybrid areas. And this is encouraging because how do you get folks more rolled into broadband while simultaneously as a company reduce your overall cost of maintenance? You go fiber because it means there's a lot less infrastructure. Once you built that passive optical network, you're basically just shooting light beams across glass. There's a lot less need for the overall Overhead of a copper infrastructure, where if you're running cable or telephony, you know, you've got so much more maintenance to do. You've got a lot more repeaters. You've got a lot more equipment across um, the entire infrastructure that you're running. So, ultimately, even though it takes a lot of money to deploy fiber, once it's all out there, the customer has a much better experience, faster internet, less outages, higher quality um, entertainment capabilities, like better HD streaming and so on. And on the other side of it, the company has less maintenance costs. So it's a win-win. This is something that I think is good for the company moving forward. And their their EPS forecast is you know, going to be compressed a little bit from last year, 58 cents. Last year, the company saw 77 cents. Some of that is like, likely also to do with some of the spending into trying to grow some of the core areas of the company. So, I'm not wildly bullish of AT&T, but I do think they're turning the ship around in a way that it would put this company on my watch list. Like I should said, when we get back to a period where it's a little bit more that we've gone through the trough in earnings, that we've gone through the trough in the economy and the market, this is one I'd have on my watch list because now it's become more of a pure play in telephony, multimedia, and broadband. And then Lockheed Martin everyone's favorite defense contractor, really the first of the industry to report this earnings season is likely to see a 5% fall in EPS due to supply chain constraints and higher costs from other factors like labor shortages, which continue to plague that industry. It's not an industry where you can really outsource either, right? This is national security stuff. You've got to be able to get domestic employees. And in the United States, we've got a very low labor force participation rate. So getting that qualified work when there's 1.6 jobs available for every unemployed person seeking work means Lockheed has to put out a higher salary and better benefits to attract people. And that's raising some of their costs. We do see a silver lining for the company, and that is that defense spending, which just seems to go up every single year in perpetuity, is set to rise again 3% in 2023. And that's likely to benefit the company's outlook. The company also last year spent about $8 billion on share buybacks, which certainly helped to raise the price of the stock. Wouldn't be too surprised if if we saw a little bit more of that in 2023.
1: Great, so next up, we have the transports and healthcare. Um, Two very interesting industries and we have plenty of them reporting next week. So, I want to start off with transports a little bit. And before I get into the various, you know, Modes. I wanted to just talk about a little bit about what's happening in the environment, right? So, we know that goods demand is coming down. We've seen that in the PCE numbers. We've seen that in you know durable goods orders. We've seen that in the ISM numbers. Um, and and this is going to be something that's very important for us to keep an eye on. And we'll hear more about this from the truckers and from the transportation or and the rails uh, and the logistics industry as well. So. Where truckers are concerned, I think you know uh, spot rates are definitely coming down. This is something that Craig um, Fuller talked about, Craig Fuller from Freight Alley. He's a great follow on Twitter. If you don't follow him, please do. He has a lot of really good insights when it comes to the transportation industry. So he's talking about something called a uh, freight recession where freight rates are going to be coming down massively, right? And he sees, sees this in the spot rates. And when spot rates start to come down, ultimately your contracted rates also start to come down. Now, this hits the bigger companies a little bit more slowly because they are usually the last to feel problems in the industry, right? Because they're so big. Um, that you know, by the time people start to cut rates with them, it takes a bit of time. So it's the smaller truckers who actually get hit first. But still, it's gonna be important to hear from uh, the bigger truckers like J.P. Hunt and Knight Swift, because it will tell us what volumes are looking like. right? The other thing to remember about transportation or the entire industry, in fact, is that they're very dependent on debt. Right. Because they have a lot of CapEx, they have a lot of maintenance CapEx, and therefore their debt levels tend to be much higher. And so with the cost of uh, capital going up, with interest rates going up, this is going to be a major pressure for them. So on the one hand, you have volumes coming down. You have uh, rates coming down. So you have your revenues, total revenues coming down. And on the other hand, you have your costs going up. So none of this bodes very well for the truckers. Um, I think they're going to see major pressure uh, starting maybe this quarter, if not this quarter, then the next quarter for sure. The other thing is, apparently the PPI also showed transportation costs down near 3% in March. And so if the PPI is already showing this, then we're about to see some serious declines in contracted rates going forward, right? Um, And the other problem facing the truckers is that it's cheaper now to use rail. So one thing that happened during the pandemic, right, when we had this issue of we needed everything, or we had a major congestion in in terms of, you know, getting goods delivered and all of that, people used trucks because it was faster um, in many ways. um, And, you know, getting things on rail was much slower, right? So it takes a longer time, but now things have normalized. In fact, just the opposite. Some people have too much inventory, so they're not ordering at all. So with volumes going down, I think, and that need for speed, not being there anymore, um, people will switch to rails. So I think the rails should do slightly better. But then, in general, with volumes coming down, with uh, you know the economy going into a recession, I, I doubt that even the rails can keep up the way they, you know, the way we expected them to. Uh, So all in all, I think looking at the transportation industry is very important because they tend to be leading indicators of what's happening in the economy. So if we see a slowdown here in truckers and in rails, we know that things are not good at all. Um, The other thing I would want to hear from UNP is um, about the recent accident and what they are doing as well. Um, to sort out, you know, their issues and how efficient they are and, you know, their safety protocols and stuff like that. So it'll be interesting to hear if they have any comments on, around any of that. Um, we also hear from United Air now. We've heard from Delta. Things are not looking good over there. Um, Delta actually missed um, EPS, I believe. Is that correct, Ma'am?
0: Yeah, top and bottom
1: line miss over there at Delta right so they were doing pretty well until the quarter before but this quarter it doesn't seem like they are you know um, doing as well anymore Uh, now united air has more international traffic so that's something that i would want to see whether people are actually uh, traveling cross border uh, whether things have opened up Um, and when we talk about cross-border travel i think the business travel part is very interesting and very important in fact and that's something that we haven't seen come back so i'd be looking out for that and uh, finally we have prologist which is the largest warehouse REIT um, in the united states and quite possibly quite possibly even in the world um, so I've put a list of their top ten uh, tenants or rather top 15 tenants uh, here. Something that we heard from them was that Amazon was actually letting go of quite a lot of warehouse space. So I think three quarters ago, they saw their earnings take a major hit because, uh, you know, they announced that Amazon was actually reducing warehousing space with them. Um, it, It remains to be seen. What more we hear this time from them, because some of this comes out as new, some of it doesn't. But, you know, something to keep an eye on with Prologis is how these companies are changing their, you know, warehousing needs. Right. So that tells us what the economy is going through. Um, if Amazon, Home Depot, FedEx are cutting warehousing space, uh, that's that's definitely not good. The other industry that we're going to see report is healthcare. So now, healthcare, we have the pharmaceuticals, J and J uh, Abbott. We have hospitals, HCA, and we have Elevans. Now, we heard from UNH, and the reason that I listen to UNH very closely is because they tell us a lot about the entire healthcare industry. UNH is by far the largest um, health insurer, and you know they basically cover everything when it comes to healthcare right so some things that they pointed out in their earnings and i think this translates into you know the earnings that we are about to see is they're basically saying that the overall drag from the pandemic era has you know started to go away the situation is normalizing people are going back for their usual treatments like routine surgeries and you know hip replacements and so on and so forth some of the issues around deferred care um there there's some issues over there so basically if you postpone if you postpone healthcare your situation gets worse and then you end up paying a higher bill um so this is something that unfortunately we're going to be seeing and therefore we're going to see healthcare expenses go up um where and this this is obviously going to benefit uh, hca so hca actually did very well last quarter as well and i think they're going to do quite well this quarter as well because of these issues the other thing with them is that their labor issues are easing uh, we saw uh, the labor report or rather the unemployment report this time which showed us you know the highest I think top three in employment was healthcare. So they are able to attract people back to the workforce. So there was an issue with, you know, healthcare workers not wanting to go to work because of the pandemic, but that's getting better as well. So everything is easing in this area, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's interesting too, right? Because you just mentioned the pandemic and we've been hearing more and more about things like long COVID. And we know that that's essentially a new spectrum of chronic disease issues and symptoms that also require more healthcare interventions. So as sad as it is to say, that's another tailwind for the industry, as are the demographics of a ever increasing aging population.
1: Absolutely. So uh, speaking of aging population, so I think we're going to see more and more people um, enter the Medicare Advantage program. That's something that um, uh, United Health spoke a lot about. Uh, there are some changes coming to the Medicare Advantage program, but these changes will be phased in over the next three years. Uh, and therefore, you know, it, United Health doesn't really see this as a major problem because they have enough time, you know, to make these changes. Now, one of the things I did want to point out were some of the changes that came in from the Inflation Reduction Act. I don't want to get into too much detail, but basically, um, what they're saying is these changes are going to make it harder for pharmaceutical companies to raise their list prices on drugs. Right, so we're already seeing this play out in the sense that in order to front run this so because they won't be able to do it after the act is you know in place they're kind of front running this and increasing prices now okay yeah so this is not so remember they're increasing prices now and we can see it in the CPI report and we can see it in the PCE report. So if you go onto uh, the BLS website or the BEA website and you drill down into the CPI report or the PCE report, you will see pharma- prescription drugs are going up. And that's one big positive when it comes to you know Medicare. Now, the, the problem with this is because pharmaceutical companies are raising prices, um, the insurance companies are now going to see some pressure. The reason, oh, oh, so there's another change as well that's coming out from CMS is that they're going to stop sharing um you know or they they're, they're, they're going to stop sharing the rebates so they they will share some of the rebates but not all of the rebates so i i don't want to get make this too complicated so basically what happens is you obviously get reimbursement from the government or these insurance companies who have these plans they get reimbursements from the government right for certain uh pharmaceuticals and you know prescription drugs so, the government is now reducing that, the amount that they're going to share or reimburse to these companies. So, on the one hand, you have the list prices of drugs already going up. And on the other hand, you have the government paying less of the reimbursement cost. So, this is a major issue for these um, uh, healthcare insurance providers because now they are going to have to bear more of the cost if they can't negotiate better rates with the pharmaceuticals. And I doubt they will because maybe UNH can because they are huge and they have a massive program, but some of the smaller ones, they won't be able to do so. And so two things are going to happen. Either the cost pressure is borne by um, these insurance companies. And that's why we saw um, uh, the share price actually, or rather, the stock price go down, even though United Health put up brilliant earnings. But after the call, um, you know, the stock price kind of crashed because these were some of the issues that were brought up on the call. So something to keep an eye on, there are several changes in the healthcare industry, and this is going to sort of change the way things are done. Um, Finally, and I think this is very important, um, the emergency benefits are being um, rolled off. So a lot of people... That's happening in May, right? Yes. So um, it's... Starting in May, but I think there's it, it's going to happen over a couple of months because it's a massive program. So from what I understand, um, the enrollment is almost 90 million people. And I think about 70 to 80% of that is rolling off or has to be redetermined. So we're not going to call them disenrollment right away, but what's going to happen is United Health and all these people who do provide that Medicaid, they're going to have to go through all these people. They're going to have to redetermine whether they're still eligible for Medicaid or not. Um, and this is the old Medicaid, so the benefits or there was some leniency to being enrolled in Medicaid during this time, and that's that's going away. So you're not everybody's eligible for Medicaid anymore. And this entire de- redetermination process is going to take place this year, and a lot of people are going to be disenrolled. Now, the problem with this for people in general is that, okay, some people they will be moved to their employer plans or, you know, um, they will they will be able to take on private plans and so on. But for the majority of people, I think they will be in limbo. And I think a lot of people will fall through the cracks. And this is not the time when they need to fall through the cracks because as Mayhem pointed out, we still have, you know, um, long COVID, we still have issues and we still have this deferred care issue. So the whole reason I brought up the issue of deferred care is because all of these people who have postponed their health care and now they have to pay a higher bill and their Medicaid, you know, benefits are rolling off. So unfortunately, and, and I hate saying this, but I don't think the healthcare industry um, is going to be very conducive for people. They will make profits because they are raising prices, because they will see more people going there. So as an investment, um, healthcare is good, but for people in general, I think you know, there's going to be a little bit more of a challenging time in the year ahead.
0: In one of the already most challenging healthcare systems of any advanced country in the world?
1: Honestly, it's not just of any advanced country. I think, you know, the US healthcare system is one of the most challenging across many, many countries, like even, you know, not so advanced countries. I mean, getting healthcare in the United States is. Very, very challenging. Very difficult. So expensive, and it prices out, you know, people who need it the most. Unfortunately, sad but true. Yeah. So next up, we have a whole lot of banks reporting. So all the ones in red over here are the banks um, between, you know, the few of the bigger ones left and a lot of the regionals. So this is when I'm going to tell you that next week is going to be not a great week when it comes to the banks and, you know, um, the banking sector and the regionals and KRE and all of this. So I think we're going to hear a lot of tough questions um, on the conference calls. Um, We're also going to see some of the other um, finance companies report like the card companies and so on um we're also going to see my favorite company ally report so so where the investment banks are concerned we have goldman sachs and we have morgan stanley um now goldman sachs had terrible earnings last time they gap down massively uh, they took the dow down with them um I think things are not going to look so bad this time because when you compare uh, last time's earnings to this time's earnings, I think you know things are still. I mean, they're still down, but they'll, they'll be stabilized because a lot of these banks. Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, both are pure investment banks. They make money from fees. They make money from transactions. We know m as are not happening. We know IPOs are not happening. We know investments in general are down. So there's not much to look forward to from these two banks. The only thing I would say is uh, Morgan Stanley is likely to do better than Goldman Sachs yet again. Um, I think they will just see a little bit more stabilization in their earnings. That's all. Now, where the regional banks are concerned, obviously, as long as the yield curve remains inverted, we know, these companies have a really, really hard time making money. We know that their deposits have declined. So we'll see by how much. and we, I think something that I know a lot of people are going to want to understand what's going to happen to their health to maturity securities and what's happening, uh, how much losses they have on their books or unrealized losses they have on their books. But I think more than that, um, the one thing that I would be looking at is the quality of their loans, right? So again, I'm, I'm, I'm focusing more on um delinquencies i'm focusing more on charge-offs on provisions and this is something that's going to be very important i think we we need to pick a few of the banks and listen to their earnings and for sure i will and we will cover that next weekend in a review
0: Yeah, I think it's really important to pay attention to what's going on in that sector. Those smaller banks, those regional banks are huge originators of commercial and industrial debt. They have enormous exposure to commercial real estate, where we've really started to see things lock up a bit, transaction volumes on multifamily buildings, office space, warehouses, retail really fallen off levels we haven't seen since the second quarter of 2020. And we're just starting to see some of that really broader slowdown in that space. And of course, office space utilization, it's not coming back. I mean, I think downtown San Francisco has over a 30% vacancy rate, but that's not much different than some of these other metropolitan areas. And this post COVID sort of change of hybrid and remote work seems to be here to stay. And that's going to hurt that part of those commercial real estate portfolios as well.
1: Absolutely. So, and I think, you know, the smaller banks and the regional banks, they basically bank, what, 70% of the real estate in the United States. So, you know, tracking them for the real estate exposure, tracking them for small business exposure, all of this is going to be very, very important. Um, And then we also hear from the card companies. We hear from Synchrony and Discovery. Oh, sorry, Discover and... uh, Honestly, I, I don't think we're going to hear anything good from any of these. Um, Amex might be okay, you know, because they, they scrutinize their, you know, applicants a little bit more. But I think we are going definitely going to see a rise in delinquencies. We're definitely going to see more provisions for net charge-offs. And this is something that we can track on a monthly basis, and we do track on a monthly basis. And we are seeing a rise in both these numbers. Finally, we have Ally. Um, now. I just saw on Twitter today someone posted the average car payment is now up to a thousand dollars. So I think two to three months in January it was about seven hundred dollars. Now it's a thousand dollars. Now the, the there are several issues with Ally. We know that you know the uh, you know people are not buying cars. If they are, you know the interest rates are high. They have a longer you know loan portfolio because they have five year loans versus short term deposits. So again, they will also be affected by the Yield curve being inverted, where you have longer end rates being lower, shorter end rates being higher. So effectively, you're in an opposite situation, right? Where you're lending on the longer end and you're you're borrowing on the shorter end. Now we're going to see delinquencies rise. I think, um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Piper Sandler basically, uh, uh, I think they projected about 50% in terms of you know. charge-offs and delinquencies and, you know, loss uh, uh, loss ratios. And one of the reasons for this is a lot of people bought used cars when new cars were not available. And people who buy used cars are usually those who have lower credit ratings. So the average credit rating on their por- portfolio has actually gone down. Um, another th- interesting thing about Ally is that they have a five billion loan agreement with Carvana. Um, not a good thing, where they're supposed to purchase loans originated by Carvana uh, based on Ally's lending standards, which is a good thing because at least they get to you know uh, you know judge the loans themselves. But at the same time, uh, these loans. You know, they do represent about 7% of their book, which is not a lot, but it is still substantial. So if Carvana is not doing well, I think Ella is going to be in trouble for that portion of their loan book as well. But either way, this is a company that I would definitely stay away from. I, I wouldn't readily short it because we don't know what's going to happen on earnings, but it is definitely a company that I would stay away from. We also have a few more tech earnings, some semiconductors. We have materials and a few oil and gas. Mayhem, do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, the tech earnings and the semiconductors? That's your, you know, forte.
0: Yeah, I think that the tech earnings picture is is probably going to be a bit mixed. The semis I'm not particularly optimistic about, particularly when it comes to Taiwan semi, um, when it comes to, lamb research and seagate i think all three are probably going to see some top line deceleration seagate is focused on trying to pivot from spinning disk technology to flash memory as they move from hard drives to solid state and that's not been the easiest journey they have a lot of competition they're late to the game in solid state they don't really have much of a reputation there and so i think that's going to be a bit of an issue and we're also starting to see their mainstay their legacy business spinning disks that there are high failure rates and the larger density drives that have become more popular now because they're using more and more advanced technology to produce them. So I would be concerned about Seagate seeing some slowing in their overall business. This also coincides with PC sales falling on average about 29% year over year across the board. What goes in computers? hard drives and solid states, and that's Seagate's bread and butter. So I would be pretty concerned that they're going to see some degree of overall slowdown. And then when we look at Taiwan, I would be looking at this as a company that's likely to see slowing because of the same consumer electronic uptake slowdown. There's just less demand for these goods that were really over the last, let's say, from mid to late 2020 through early 2022, there was so much demand pulled forward, probably about four or five years worth of product demand. And a lot of that was consumer electronics, computers, phones, tablets, TVs, you name it. And that's because there was so much stimulus. There was monetary, And fiscal stimulus flooding the system in multiple different ways, whether it was helping to stimulate the consumer or small and medium sized businesses or the broader financial system. And a lot of that got spent into the economy. We saw one of the biggest surges in demand for goods, including consumer electronics that we've ever seen. Now we're in the hangover phase, and I believe that that's going to have a materially negative impact on these semis. We saw Samsung project their first quarter earnings are going to fall about 96%. We saw Foxconn guiding down, saying that the demand for the products that they manufacture for Apple is down, so I think their growth was less than 4%, and we've seen similar indications from Taiwan Semi and some of their peers. You had mentioned also Micron last quarter, where they revenue had fallen pretty significantly such that if you annualize it it was down about 50 percent this all kind of points to a deteriorating picture for semis and then one last note on that part is that south korean semi exports are at some of the lowest levels that they've ever dropped to in a cycle so this is just a bunch of different coincident indicators you could say that tell us that it's likely that earnings in the semi space are going to be down on the other side f5 networks which is a network. Working and security vendor they uh they have a lot of different interesting office offerings they actually bought Nginx, x which is a web stack company they they basically have an open source and commercial offering for web services that sit on the majority of cloud infrastructure if it's not engine x it's apache or you know god forbid microsoft iis but F5 is a pretty well-run company. I do think they're likely to see higher revenue. I believe IBM as well, and I wouldn't consider IBM a well-run company, but we're looping them in with F5 because these are the two techs we're covering that are outside of semis. IBM's likely to see higher revenue as well. But I think the bottom line for both of these companies remains a little uncertain what happens quarter over quarter and year over year. I also think that IBM has a lot of overall challenges as a company. It's been mismanaged for such a long time. They've tried to portray themselves as a cloud company, as an AI company, as a quantum computing company, as a Linux company. They're really not any of those things. They're having a hard time fitting in. And what they really have become is a body shop, intellectual property litigation, and sort of overall just a company that's constantly in transition and not necessarily finding their home. And there's been so much churn in the C suite, they've never really found their way. I think the current CEO they have is probably one of the best they've had in the last 4 or 5, but I still think they they exist in a very challenging environment and with the amount of patents and, you know, relationships and the brand value of IBM, they still have the potential to turn things around. I just don't think it's going to be easy, particularly in this economic environment. So I'm looking overall for next week to be a little bit humbling for the semiconductors and probably somewhat challenging for the technology companies F5 and IBM, especially when it comes to their guidance.
1: That's very interesting. So from what I understand, um, uh, for the semiconductors, uh, earnings are supposed to decline, or at least the estimates are uh, show that earnings are supposed to decline quite a bit. Um, but I think something that they are pointing out is, you know, the headwinds to margins here. Uh, what do you make of that?
0: I think it makes sense. There's a huge glut. There is so much excess capacity of semis across the board, and you talk about CPUs at Intel and AMD, GPUs at Nvidia and AMD. You look at the products that are being made by Seagate and Western Digital, uh, Samsung, their storage and their memory. Everything is just stacking up. They made way too much because we had that surge in demand. Companies recalibrated, thinking this was the new normal, and we're starting to find out that not only is it not the new normal, but it probably because of so much demand being pulled forward. There's going Going to be a lot of slack in the years ahead. So I'd be looking at that as kind of, they've got to clear some of this excess inventory out. Samsung was one of the companies that didn't even slow their production until recently. So they have a huge amount of glut. And some of these other semis are not in too much of differentiated positions. We found out last quarter that AMD, was actually restricting the amount of supply available for distribution to try to artificially boost the price of their chips that they were selling. So certainly some signs across the board that there is a glut and that's going to have a impact on compressing margins. Wow.
1: That's interesting. Uh, Which brings me to materials. Um, So, we have Alcoa, we have FCX, we have Steel Dynamics reporting next week, all three major companies. Um, but I don't think you know we're about to see anything good here. So this quarter, materials are projected to decline the most uh, among all the sectors. So EPS decline is supposed to be 32%. Margin decline is supposed to be 4%, and that's quite a lot for uh, material companies because they already have thin margins, so a 4% decline is quite a bit. Now, Alcoa posted minus 70 cents in EPS last time. I, I don't expect anything better this time around. From what we understand, China, the Chinese government, in fact, has you know given them um, Given out an order to their steel companies to cap production because there's been a lack of demand. Um, their real estate sector is not uh, as it was before. Obviously, How about um, that. There's not a. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so and it's not just them. Obviously, we, we're seeing construction spending decline in the U.S. and across the board everywhere, right? So with construction spending decline, you have Alcoa going down, you have Steel Dynamics going down, you have Nucor going down. Now, Steel Dynamics, core, both are really, really good companies, but this, again, this is not the time in the cycle for it. So if we're looking at a recession coming on, um, demand is going to be slowing massively and China knows this. And so the Chinese government is trying to cap production to keep prices stable, And high to a certain extent, basically, they are artificially manipulating prices. You know, not surprising, but you know, they're trying to artificially manipulate supply and you know, to match demand and keep prices high. So, um, something that we're trying to see, we're seeing OPEC trying to do as well on the oil side, right? So, this is a complicated industry it's an interesting you know area but it's still a very complicated industry uh, but one thing that we know for sure is you know when when the world enters a recession and we are i mean it might not technically be a recession but the world is entering a massive slowdown right and so it doesn't bode well for these companies at all in terms of it's oil and gas we have <laughs>
0: It, it just inevitable. makes inflation stickier. The, the, the way that they're trying to kind of manipulate prices in the short term just makes that picture worse for inflation with energy, with semis, with uh, steel and this other stuff. It's interesting.
1: It is interesting, but it's inevitable that, you know uh, you know, demand takes over or the decline in demand takes over and prices, you know, drop again. So we've yeah. seen this every time with OPEC as well. Every time OPEC, you know, Tries to cut production to keep prices buoyant. Um, it doesn't work. In a in in a matter of weeks and months, you know, you you see uh, demand fall, and demand is falling, and so you see the price go back down again. We'll see what happens this time. Um, so, in terms of oil and gas, we have Baker Hughes, Kinder Morgan, and Schlumberger reporting now. I think this time around, I mean, even though, you know, EPS is projected to be ne- positive versus negative for most of the other, uh, you know, sectors, energy is still supposed to post a positive EPS growth and a positive margin growth, but it's uh, much, much lower than the last few quarters. So I think we're going to see moderated results. Baker Hughes, in fact, missed their EPS last time around. Uh, Kinder Morgan beat uh, top line and bottom line. So. Kinder Morgan is a very interesting company. Um, For some reason, people don't tend to like this company very much uh, on the one hand because it's related to natural gas. They transport 40% of the US's natural gas. Um, But on the other hand, people like it for their dividend. They've got a 6.2% dividend yield. Um, The interesting thing about this company is 63% of their revenues are on take or pay contracts, which means that, you know, their pricing is fixed. So their revenues are more or less fixed. So 40% is floating revenues, 63% is fixed revenues, which is actually quite good if you think of risk management. But with gas prices, you know, all over the place, (laughs) that 40% of fluctuating revenue can make or break Uh, Earnings. So we'll see what happens this time around. We've had a huge, huge drop in natural gas prices. So uh, it remains to be seen uh, how it translates into Kinder Morgan's earnings. And um, I think that's it. That is it. So
0: we want to thank everyone for tuning in to this Macrovisor Earnings Season coverage, part of an ongoing series that Aisha and I will be providing to our members. We're giving this one out free to everyone to give you a sense as to what we're doing over here with this project. And we want you to consider, if you enjoyed this coverage, to subscribe to Macrovisor. Right now, we're offering 50% off. That's right five, zero, 50% off for your first year. If you sign up basically by April 20th. Okay. So that means whether you sign up for a monthly or yearly subscription, you're getting it half off. So if you enjoy our content, if you want to support our work, please do consider signing up for Macrovisor. There's a lot more content like this. There's also more macro analysis where we take the complexities of the macro picture. We focus on what's important that you need to pay attention to. And then we also come up with actionable ideas from that research and analysis. And finally, if you don't already follow us on Twitter, check us out. We've got our handles right here. So please do consider us. Uh, you know, to check out our content on Twitter. And finally, just thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this content, please do consider sharing it with your friends and your colleagues. And remember, the next week will be paid. So if you enjoyed this, sign up. You'll get 50% off your first year if you sign up by April 20th, and you'll be able to continue to enjoy our coverage of earnings season, the macro implications, the investing ideas and thematic ideas that come out of it. Because one of our goals at Macrovisor is to take all of this information to distill it, find the signal and the noise, and and really help people gain an advantage because most folks that are in the market, whether you're an investor or a swing trader, you don't have the time to go through all of this information and to find what's important and what can help to provide an edge. And that's exactly what we're here to do. So we really hope that you all enjoyed this. Aisha, before we take off, do you have any final thoughts that you want to share with our
1: viewers? No, it's going to be a jam-packed earnings season. Um, Let's keep our eyes and ears open. I think there's a lot to learn uh, from each of these earnings. And as Mayhem pointed out, we're going to be on top of this and covering them very closely.
0: Absolutely. Well, everyone, thanks again for tuning in. We'll look forward to catching up with you next weekend when we'll have a recap of what happened in the week ahead and also what We'll be looking forward to in that next week of earnings. Until next time, this has been Macrovisor.